following is an R.E.D. Podcast Network production, bringing on-demand geek audio straight to your eardrums one podcast at a time. To listen to more great geek audio podcasts, check out the R.E.D. Podcast Network at redpodcastnetwork.com, iTunes, and Stitcher Radio. Ladies, gentlemen, clowns, penguins, and villains, would-be heroes of Gotham, welcome to the Gotham City Podcast. This is episode number six. My name is Ian, I'm your host, and yes, that accent is an Irish one. Every Tuesday, the podcast will review in the episode of Gotham from the night before, talk about the characters we meet, where they come from, their part in this new imagining of the world of Batman, and any other news relating to the show as the season progresses. Ladies and gentlemen, you are very, very welcome. Thank you once again for choosing to put the Gotham City Podcast into your eardrums for another week. I appreciate the fact that you take some time to put this podcast into your ears when there's so many other great podcasts out there, and you continue to choose this one and continue to support it, so thank you very much. Before we kick off the show this week, and get into some uh, some little bit of news around Gotham and then get into reviewing last night's episode. I want to say a huge thanks to iTunes Podcasts who actually spotlighted the Gotham City Podcast in a tweet uh, last week alongside some of the other Gotham City Podcasts or some of the other Gotham Podcasts. And, uh, you know, it's hugely uh, gratifying in one respect that the week before we're sort of, we were getting uh, some good critical acclaim for this show, which was awesome, and that now iTunes have recognised that, hey, we're one of the the ones that seems to be quite popular out there. And judging by the feedback that I've been getting in from people as well, people have not been shy about sending in feedback. If you have any queries, questions, comments, or any feedback you want to send in, you can always send it to GothamCityPodcast at gmail.com. As always, I'll check it out and I'll make sure that I do get back to where I address it on the f- uh, future episode of the show. Um, one of the things which has become pretty common from uh, a few people that have emailed in is that they love the show, which I'm hugely grateful that people do love it. Uh, they love the content of the show, and they like my take on things. Again, I hugely appreciate that. Uh, but two things seem to be bugging people, and I'll address them in this order. And actually, they're good things that people are bugged by. Number one, people are like, hey, Ian, why do you keep referring to Kevin Smith's podcast for opinion? want to hear your opinion. We know what Kev Smith's opinion is going to be. Uh, hey, no problems. You want my opinion? I'll give you my opinion. I have no problems on that. Second thing is, people have been saying, hey, we would like you to have a second person to be able to play off for the episodes because while we enjoy your insights and we like what you're bringing to the table, it would be great if you could bounce that off someone during the show so it stops being such a monologue. Um, here's the deal. Whenever I've started these podcasts... They've generally been out of my own genuine interest for the subject, which is why I find it very easy to be quite passionate when I'm talking about it and quite excited and effusive about it. And a lot of my friends really, don't, in some cases, don't share my interest in things like Batman. They don't share my interest in things like comics and everything else. So it's kind of difficult to find someone. When you're talking about doing podcasts for things like this, an awful lot of the content tends to be generated by uh, US fans and American fans as opposed to British and Irish fans. So it's difficult to try and find someone who's in the same time zone or can get in the same time zone. And I also want to do this podcast in a time frame where it's reasonably close to the time at which the episode is actually aired. 
as opposed to giving it a couple of days later where it sits around and marinades and then the podcast actually loses traction with listeners because it doesn't pick it up. But at the same time, folks, I do recognize that my monologue will at some stage piss you off and you will stop listening to the podcast as a result. So anyone out there who is in the UK and Ireland or can get onto um, time frame that I'm in, so in other words, being able to go at, say, 2200 uh, GMT, yeah, which is Greenwich Mean Time, uh, on Tuesdays. If you're interested in becoming a second uh, host on the show, drop me an email to gothamcitypodcast at gmail.com or send me a tweet or a DM on Twitter at Gotham City Pod. Now, all of that is now out of the way. Um, I want to get into talking about a couple of little bits and pieces of news. Now, the first thing I want to talk about is, apparently, Gotham is the most downloaded pirated TV show on the internet this fall so far, which uh, I'm not sure the good folks at Fox are going to think of that as a good thing. I'm certainly not going to... In some respects, it's actually not a bad thing. Um, Apparently, the pilot episode of Gotham, according to an article that was in Variety magazine and published online, uh, it said that from September 17th to September 29th, the pilot episode of Gotham was downloaded via Torrent Network worldwide 1.33 million times with 600,000 of those coming the day after its season premiere last Monday according to data provided by piracy tracking firm Excipio. Now, here's the thing with this. Piracy only exists and this is going to annoy some people but I, I, I want to make this very clear. Piracy only exists where there is a lack of service being provided and a great example of this is here in Ireland, um, we had a huge problem of piracy in this country. We still do have a problem of piracy in some respects, but one of the biggest problems we had was that when uh, Netflix was introduced where people had a legal alternative to be able to view things, um, people who were looking after um, the general sort of internet services in Ireland is a company called Inex, and they're basically like the central service provider for internet provision in Ireland. And all the internet service providers, the ISPs, actually join or they meet at this place uh, to be able to disperse the internet connectivity from around the world around to all the service providers in Ireland and guys I know who are working there have actually said to me that you know if you actually you can actually pretty much at this point graph and if you look back at it the introduction of Netflix and traffic on Netflix versus torrenting and as Netflix uh, traffic was rising torrenting in Ireland was generally falling by pretty much almost the same amount. And as Netflix has grown, torrenting has continued to fall. And this, to me, sort of proves the fact that, you know, if you make things available to people and you stop putting out TV shows on stupid timetables where things don't match up or you start having staggered release dates around the world for things, you are actually making sure that people don't need to engage in piracy to get something. Now, there are some people who say, well, hey, people should wait. No, that's just not how the world works. It really, really isn't. And again, Netflix has been a great example of this. And if you think about Disney movies, Disney movies pretty much now get a worldwide release date universally. And within a very short time of those movies leaving the theatres, they will very often find their way onto DVD or into Blu-ray or into digital download format on iTunes and Amazon or a whole heap of things uh, in very, very quick time. And they're very, very close together as well. And again, this is a decision taken by a company like Disney, who's probably now the largest single uh, TV and movie producing company in the world at this point, given the fact they've subsumed Marvel, they've subsumed 
Star Wars, a whole heap of other things. Um, this only proves that point. Now, to get off that point and to stop sort of laboring on it as well, um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about uh, before we get into the, the talking about this episode is um, where Gotham is actually going as a TV show and sort of the general feedback that we've seen from people out there. Now, some of the feedback that's been out there around the show has been, um, I don't really get it, I can't see how this is going to survive on a procedural. Okay, and I understand that. I don't think this show is entirely designed to be a procedural show in the same way that, say, CSI is. Um, I, you need to remember that we are going to be living in a world which is doesn't necessarily have a time frame attached to it. And this week's episode actually is a really, really good example of that, um, which I think is actually really, really important. And you need to remember that what's going on with this series is to actually just take a completely brand new, fresh look at what the heck is going on in the world of Gotham and the, and in the world that actually shapes what gives us Batman. Um, and again, we need to be sort of taken in those terms. Now, a lot of people are also completely new to this universe and to this world and therefore don't have the benefit of hindsight in looking at uh, the origins laid out by people like Grant Morrison, by Frank Miller, um, or by... Alan Moore or uh, or any of these guys who've actually contributed to like this great 75 year history of some amazing story tales that have been told in comic books and in graphic novels uh, around Batman and again hugely hugely important that those people don't feel alienated either so it is a very very fine line for people to actually walk in relating to, in relation to this so it is very very easy to understand that so to get into talking about this week's episode this week's episode was entitled Selena Kyle so it was going to focus heavily around as uh, Selena Kyle being one of sort of the main characters of the story for this and as we come into this episode Bruce is struggling to try and overcome some of his fears and to test himself and he's doing so by trying to uh, control his pain thresholds by putting his hand over a candle and seeing how long he can leave it there for uh, and tolerate discomfort. And again, if you're familiar with the Batman universe, you're looking at this going, yes, this is of course how Bruce Wayne would have had to pick himself up and dust himself off for this. And sure enough, he, you know, Alfred tackles him about it and is extremely worried. Uh, again, played, uh, I love Sean Pertwee as an actor, I think he's amazing. Um, I really loved his work in Elementary uh, as Lestrade. I thought that was utterly fantastic. So when they actually said that they were picking him for this character, it was like perfect. He played a brilliant Lestrade in Elementary alongside Johnny Lee Miller uh, and, um, oh God, Lucy Liu. Jeez, I almost forgot her name. That was really bad. Um, but I really love that show, and I love what he brought to that. And especially because I was worried about what he was going to bring to it, given the fact I was already in love with Sherlock. And I loved the way that show was put together by the BBC. Um, and Elementary was a show that I thought I'd hate, but I ended up absolutely loving dearly. And I love that and Sherlock equally at this point in time. Um, and in fact, sometimes I think Elementary actually has the edge, which is a pretty controversial thing to say. But in any case, so Bruce is there and he's learning to overcome his fears. Now, there's two problems with this as I see it, okay? Number one, this is a little bit too early for this to be happening for Bruce Wayne. And I said, I think uh, when I sort of looked back over the pilot episode again uh, during the week after the podcast went out, and I see that image of Bruce standing on the roof of Wayne Manor um, talking about conquering fear. I, again, I think that's just a little bit too soon that Bruce is actually having these... Um, 
these thoughts and is trying to control and shape his life in this way. I think it, it to me, if you if you think if you think about the the idea of what's just happened, the, it, this idea of that he's just lost his parents the most horrific way possible. He's watched them die in front of them. Um, I don't think the natural human response for anyone, and I, Batman is not meant to be extraordinary at this point in time. He's a young child. Uh, it is coming together with the grips uh, of what's happened. His parents aren't around. He has a parental figure in the form of Alfred who finds himself in the most extraordinary situation that he's now having to be a stand-in father for someone who's going through the most difficult phase in any child's life which is their younger teenage years where they're dealing with puberty and they're dealing with a whole heap of emotions that are going on and being triggered by the fact their body chemistry is changing and if you throw something that's pretty traumatic into the mix as well again um, I think it's it's almost pushing things a little bit too far for the sake of trying to remind people, yes, this is Bruce Wayne, this is Batman, and this is a way of we're, we're going to keep you interested in it. And I don't think they need to do it. Um, we then sort of move into that scene, which is the central story of this, which is where kids are being kidnapped for still an undisclosed reason. And they're being drugged by these two characters who are called Doug and Paddy. Doug is being played uh, by Frank Whaley. And Paddy is being played by Lily Taylor. Now, those two those two actors should be pretty familiar to people in recent times on TV. Uh, Whaley played uh, Agent Van Miller in Ray Donovan, and Taylor played uh, the police captain. I can't remember the character's name, but that was in. Uh, Almost Human, which was a TV show that I actually really, really liked an awful lot. And I was really annoyed at the fact that they cancelled that show because it was hugely enjoyable. Um, And you know what, I don't think people actually gave it its fair dues and its fair chances. With all due respect. But the central thing is that these two characters that are being played, Doug and Patty, are going around and drugging homeless children and collecting them for an undisclosed reason. Um, Okay. I like when people decide to take stories like this into things like Batman because you don't expect them to come into uh, the world of Bruce Wayne and Gotham. You're more expecting things like the Joker and and all that kind of sort of uh, clown foolery, as I'm going to call it. You don't expect this to come in. You expect this for things like CSI. This is a CSI type story. Kids being drugged and kidnapped for nefarious reasons. I really do not like the way the characters of Doug and Patty were played. They were so goofy. If you're going to do do a story like this, for God's sake, play it straight. Play it somewhat menacing. Please stop insulting the intelligence of the audience by making them goofy. You've already set this world up that there is some sort of a grittiness and reality of of things. With the murder of the Waynes, the fact that this is a city which has lost its way, is descending into crime. And if a crime is actually providing the, the balance in the city, which is really bloody messed up. And you've got villains that are very believable and very straight. They're organized crime villains. And then when you throw two goofy characters like this into it, again, it, it breaks that um, your uh, your trust in what's being shown to you. And you and you kind of come, you are taken out of the moment of it. And I hate when TV shows do this. And it, it's almost like this weird nod as to go, hey, we understand the Batman universe has got these crazy weird characters that are in it. And you know what? We're going to drop one or two crazy characters of your own in here who you've never, ever seen before. Um, stop doing it. it. It's insulting. And if you're trying to bring people into the universe to get them to buy into the grittiness and the grimness of what Gotham is, and one man 
uh, and his his own problems and trying to make his way through it while you've got these other characters who are caught up in the whirlwind of what's going on in this city bringing goofy type characters just hurts it and, and that's just my opinion on this uh, we then sort of cut to where one of the children actually escapes by being thrown through a window uh, and James Gore and then the, the adult who was with the homeless children has been murdered by uh, I believe it's Doug and so James Gordon the next day is seen investigating the murder of the homeless man. Harvey Bullock turns up and does his usual thing, you know, doesn't want to get involved. A patrol officer turns up and then he sort of gets into a scuffle where James Gordon basically accused the, pol- the patrol officer uh, of putting his personal interests first and just being a bad policeman. Um, and again, I, I love this thing of that James Gordon is so um, immovable. And you know what, it's... Here's the thing you need to remember with this. When you're talking about Batman, Batman is, doesn't kill people. Batman is so on the right side of good, it's not even funny. There's a lot of people who go, well, Superman is crap, because Superman is such a Boy Scout. Batman is the ultimate Boy Scout. Batman doesn't cross a line either. He does, And again, if anyone who's watched any of the animated movies will remember, there's a great movie called Under the Red Hood, where towards the end there is a uh, discussion that's going on between Jason Todd, who is a former Robin, uh, who's now turned into a, a crime boss come vigilante. And there's, a, there's a, a heated discussion between him and Bruce, who is Batman at this point. And... Um, where Jason Todd turns around and to Bruce and says, well, I don't understand why you've never killed the Joker. The Joker tried to kill me. How come you wouldn't even go to take care of him after what he'd done to me, after he took me from you? And Bruce says this very succinctly, and it's played brilliantly by uh, Bruce Greenwood, who, who is brilliant uh, a voiceover for this movie. And he says, you know what, God, do you know how many times I've wanted to end him? Do you know how easy it would be for me to just take his life but I can't let myself go there because the second I go there, there's no coming back. And that is the thing about Batman. He is unentrenchable in this and he cannot be moved from this fact. He is the ultimate source of good and some of his methods are hugely questionable and beyond any shadow of a doubt, Batman is a dick. But he is ultimately good and he does not bend over to the side of killing people. And having this character of James Gordon there, and you've already been set up to the fact that James Gordon is going to be this uh, pseudo-influence in um, as a marker of what is right and what is good in Gotham for young Bruce Wayne through their continued interaction and their continued relationship over the course of the show. And the, the foundation song was set in the first episode. And you can see it in this episode as well that it is very much so going to be a foundation in it as well. So having this character there uh, and seeing that he, you know, even when he's had to, create, to go down the road of having that mock execution of Cobblepot, it's, it's already resting uneasy with him. Every time someone brings up the fact that he they think that he's killed Cobblepot. You can see how utterly uneasy he is. And he just wants to scream, I didn't bloody well kill him. I didn't kill the guy at all. Um, I let him go. I'm not like you. But he can't because he realizes that he has got to maintain this pretense as much as it gnaws away at him to be able to continue on his one-man mission of trying to make a difference in the world. And again, anyone who's familiar with Knight Rider from the 1980s, a little bit older, you know, one man can make a difference. Um, I love this sort of ideal. Uh, and it is a very, very atypical American concept as well. If you think about it, in the last couple of years in the American Armed Forces where they had this campaign of the one-man army, uh, that one man can make a difference. 
And if you think about things like Lee Major, it's again it goes back to an awful lot of American popular culture. Think about the Bionic uh, Bionic Man, like Lee Majors and Million Dollar Man, sorry. Um, and you think about Knight Rider, and then you think about like things like Straight Hawk again, with one man making a difference. Uh, again, these are very very nineteen eighties concepts and very nineteen seventies concepts, but they still have, have played an awful lot of influence on the people who are writing these stories now because they would have grown up in this period of time. Um, so these things would be very very fresh to them in terms of their influence. But here's the thing with this story: when you're talking about things like the mock execution of everything else. You can see even how uneasy um, Jim Gordon was and even partaking in that in last week's episode. And it, it just shows that this is a character who's not going to be moved. And even when he's sitting there with his wife-to-be, Barbara, and they're talking about uh, the fact that these kids have been kidnapped and the, the police captain is basically stuck in embargo on talking to the press. And she picks up the phone and makes a call to one of the news desks to go, hey, kids have been kidnapped, the police are sitting on this story, blah, blah, blah. And James, even though he recognises that, you know what, leaking this information was the right thing to do to help protect the other kids and to make people aware that this is actually happening in their city, he's also like, you've also just put yourself in a world of trouble. I work in a police station where people are corrupt. He can't even bring himself to admit just how messed up his own police force that he's a part of actually is. Um, again, it, it just shows that like how far uh, in... In, in in the crap this guy actually is and how much he's going to have to wade through. Again, if you ever want to see the measure of how strong your hero is, you must always have a villain that is equal, if not that little bit, stronger than your hero. Because when they finally do overcome them, there is a sense of achievement. You actually feel like your hero has accomplished something and you actually feel like your hero has made a difference and has actually triumphed. And that triumph is worth celebrating. And that is always the best basis of which you can actually ever have a a hero overcome odds against a villain. You can never have a hero that's stronger than a villain. It doesn't work, and it will never work. And the reason being is your hero always has to be the underdog and has to be able to, to sometimes have their backsides handed to them in a way that you're like, okay, I thought they were going to win, and now they've just got their ass kicked. And and to be and to be put under the pressure so much more, where you kind of I find yourself asking, Jesus, I'm not sure how much more the hero can actually take here, and the hero then has that triumphant fight back. And think about every wrestling sh- match you've ever watched when you were a kid, and growing up, if you were anyway uh, taken with wrestling, where you see. The, the good guy and the bad guy, they get in the ring, they start out, they lock up and they tussle and then there's a little bit of back and forth where it seems equal and then it comes a point to which inevitably the the bad guy cheats, you know, a thumb in the eye, you know, grabbing the shorts on a, on a roll-up that gets spotted by the referee, um, raking the eyes or or some, something else which is against the spirit of rules, maybe, an, oh, maybe a closed fist. Uh, I'm not going to get into debates about how wrestling has changed now but just follow me with this for a moment. And, and, the, and the fact that you know, the good guy is taking sneaky shots uh, when the referee isn't looking, is taking shots to the groin, is is being beaten up and and is and basically is being cheated into the point of being beaten and being and put into a point of submission. Only for the good guy to eventually find the energy and the will from the from the will of the audience who are cheering them on and, and, and wanting them to fight back and to to have good overcome evil and in for the end for the good guy to actually win. Now, sometimes the good guy doesn't always win, and sometimes, for business reasons, the good guy has to lose. So that becomes a battle in a war, so that ultimately, when they do win the war at the end, it's 
all the more sweeter and the payoff is better and the good guy will lose some battles along the way and they'll win some battles along the way again this is important in the development of every of every character and their and to have them their nemesis their nemesis is in that is for exists for that reason it has to be the complete opposite of them and we're seeing that with Harvey. Harvey is every bit Jim's equal. Now the thing is, I don't think Harvey. People think, oh well, Harvey is uh, is Jim's enemy. He's not his enemy. He's his nemesis. The fact is that Harvey has just become so used to uh, the helplessness that he's found himself in. When he joined the police force, no one joins a police force to be a dirty cop. They join a police force with hope. They join a police force that they want to make a difference in the world. And what shapes your um, shapes you after you uh, you achieve something is your experiences. And if the sum of his experiences has been that it's pointless to try and change the world, the world cannot be changed. I'm too small. I'm just one person. And you know what? The path of least resistance is the easiest way from way for my own survival. That that behavior after a certain period of time becomes um, a natural form of reaction and a natural form of action for the people to take part in. So you always need to remember that when it comes to Bullock. Bullock isn't necessarily a bad guy. He's a guy who's just become a victim to the circumstances that he's found himself in and has become so used and so detached from what's going on for him it's now a path of least resistance it's not necessarily about wanting to be the bad guy or to do the wrong thing uh, it's just a thing that he's found himself in now when you're talking about sort of the victims of circumstance Cobblepot reappearing after his mock execution last week by Gordon where we find him hitchhiking and he's just a little over nine miles outside Gotham um, he gets into uh, this four by four uh, by people who are like, they basically try to jerk his chain as he's going in, uh, just as he's about to touch the door, drive off a little bit. We've all done this on people we know and love. Because um, it's amusing to us, because human beings are weird. Um, and he murders one of the guys after he gets handed a beer because he's just been called, you know, when you were walking with that and shuffling along, you look like the penguin. And that's a trigger for him. Now, I'm not sure I'm entirely happy with this need to constantly show the trigger for him that people call him Penguin and he starts killing people. Um, I think it's too easy. I think it, it doesn't encourage people. You know, it gives people an answer without actually giving them a question. And that's my problem with things like this. And it, it comes down to what I call lazy show writing. And it happens sometimes in American TV shows where they go through this thing of what's, what I have called the path of least resistance as well. Um, where rather than actually making someone use their brain just for, just for 10 seconds, just that little bit, just to make them go, oh, they will actually give them the answer alongside the question at the same time. What's two and two, four? That's exactly what it's the equivalent of. Um, and uh, people should be given a little bit more credit for that, especially given, again, the type of show that they're framing. It's a drama show. Drama shows are meant to leverage off drama. You're meant to be telling that story and weaving it, not giving people the answers straight away. And, and it's by the same token, you don't leave them hanging and drop a storyline either. Um, that's just really silly. We then cut back into the police station, um, where obviously the story has been leaked out, the captain isn't happy, um, and you've got Bullock, and you've got Gordon sitting in the police, uh, in, in the captain's office, and then Nigma coming in, they're talking about, you know, um, 
how the kids are getting drugged and the fact there's this drug called ATP. I really do not like this Edward Nigma character. I uh, I think it's just way too creepy. I think it's way it stands out way too much. Um, and I'm it, again, it just takes me out of that moment as well. Um, I don't need for him to constantly be posing questions and riddles. It it just feels awful. It feels really trite and it's really insulting as well. Um, you're aiming this like think about the time slot that this goes in. You're not aiming this at kids, okay? And if this was a kids show, look at how any of the Batman TV shows, the animated shows, have been done in the past. It didn't treat kids like idiots. In fact, you know what? It actually dealt with fairly grown-up things with kids in a really, really structured manner that wasn't insulting and it wasn't condescending. So why, when it comes to adults' TV shows, do we suddenly feel the need that we have to condescend and go to the lowest common denominator when it comes to, to uh, providing entertainment for adults? Like, is it is it... N- is it just too difficult for people to grasp the concept of, you know what, you don't actually need to stick a sticker on the bad guy that goes, hi, my name is bad guy. And when you do things like this with a character, it is the same thing. And again, I wish writers and TV shows would stop doing it and stop treating these uh, these characters like puns. If you're going to tell me and set this world that it's kind of gritty and it's semi-realistic, don't drag Roger Rabbit into the scene. Which is what you do when you do these type of things. Um, then you come into the thing of like the whole relationship between Fish Mooney and Falcone. I love this dynamic, uh, and I love the fact that you know um, Mooney is this star on the rise. And you know, I tell you what, this relationship reminds me of. If anyone has been familiar with Transformers growing up as a kid, or even in the movies that have come out recently by Michael Bay, regardless of your opinion of them, this idea of like, you know, we've got Megatron and Starscream, and Starscream is always looking to overthrow Megatron. This is the same kind of relationship, and there's a kind of snivelling um, loyalty that happens there, which is, and where to their face, they're like, of course we would never do this. Nothing but love and respect for you. Why would we do otherwise? Um, and you always seen that with Starscream. Um... Maybe like where you'd be saying to Megatron things like you know, I we I would never set out to fail you. Uh, I I am I am only here to serve you, Lord Megatron. And and then you'd eventually hear like the Megatron going, "You have failed me again, Starscream." I love that Hugo Weaving version of uh, Megatron. It's always very very cool. But again, you see this in in this, and I love when they show characters like this. If you anyone who watched The Sopranos, you'd be familiar with this as well. Uh, where you had guys who were trying to take Tony's spot um, or other people who were trying to seize control of crime families in any other drama again. It's very, very good to show this because there is always this war going on about who's supposed to be the next top dog. Um, And again, it's a power struggle. And within crime families and organized crime, there is always a power struggle. So again, hugely important to go and show this. Um, One character I love in this already... And again, I think it's the choice of actor in this has made the difference is Richard Kind as the mayor. I love Richard Kind as an actor. I think he's utterly fantastic. Um, There was a TV show that was done by Michael J. Fox back in the day um, where he he played an assistant to the mayor of Chicago, I think it was. Uh, And Richard Kind was in there as a press secretary to uh, the mayor. And again... This guy knows how to play creepy, weird, weaselly characters in a great way. And if you think about any of the movies that the guy has been in, he does it so well. And it's so natural to him. 
uh, and it doesn't ever feel out of place. Um, you never feel like you're taken out of the moment with the guy, uh, which I really, really dig as well. And if, if I put that in comparison to uh, Frank Whaley's characters, um, like Agent Van Miller in in uh, Ray Donovan and his current character of Doug and this, I really dislike how that guy plays characters because I think he takes me out of the moment. Ray Donovan is a drama, you know, it's a pretty extreme drama as it is. Uh, but I hated the, his portrayal of of Van Miller because every time that character came on screen, and it, again, it's it's only because it's this guy and it's the second character he's played where I've seen him in a show uh, in recent times where his appearance and his performance on the screen took me out of the moment and made me go, come on, what the hell? Um, and I, you know, I hate that. I don't look, characters should never pull you out of the moment. If anything, they should drag you further down that rabbit hole and actually give you an opinion and make you either love them or hate them, depending on what they are. Um, but they should never ever pull you out of the moment. And when a character pulls you out of the moment, it's failed. Uh, and it, it, to be honest, I, I don't care the fact that I'm not a professional writer, but this is storytelling 101. Never have your character pull your audience out of the moment. The second they do, it's almost like they're breaking that third wall or their fourth wall um, with the audience. And you should never do it. It's terrible. It's the equivalent of, of characters actually looking at the camera and then talking directly into it. You just do not do it. It's terrible. And I don't care how many times people will say, but Ian Clerser explains it all. It was brilliant as a kid growing up. I don't care. It's a very different type of show. Now... One of the things which I thought again was really cool is Carl Kane. They've they've got some really great cast of, of like actors for this. Carl Kane playing uh Cobblepot's mother. And we learned that it's it's Cobblepot, not Cobblepot. Um I think I'm actually gonna call this Apple at uh, this episode Cobblepot, not Cobblepot. Um I, I love how she plays things. She plays things in a really creepy way, um, which I've always really liked. And again, but her performance, again, is one of those over-egged performances for this, which again took me out of the moment. There's a couple of times in this episode where we've had characters just completely lift me out of the moment and make me forget that I'm in this uh, this place in time that's unspecified in this world, which has gone to hell in a handbasket in a city which has just degenerated because one of the pillars of balance has fallen, which was the Wayne family. Um, and that things are just all gone terrible. And I, I don't like the fact that I had these characters pull me out of these stories. Kids being kidnapped is a terrible fucking thing to happen. It really, really is. It's horrible. And the fact that kids are being drugged and kidnapped and for a really sinister and unspecified reason. Again, these are the things that anyone who's enjoyed watching episodes of CSI over the years where you've had these kind of stories is has found them very gritty and very telling. And then you've got something like Batman, which is supposed to be pretty universal as a story and it introduced it to it. Again, hugely brave and I really, really like it. And then the whole story about how the kids get saved in the end. But they don't really get saved. I love this. This was something I really enjoyed. There wasn't a happy ending here for the kids. The kids, in some cases, still ended going upstate. Again, preserving that story that Gotham is its dying. It's, it's falling apart. Any sense of reasonableness in society and righteousness in society is gone. And, it's, and even though the, you've got the cop there who's sitting there with Selena. And he's like, look, no matter what happens, you've got this prior rap sheet, unfortunately, you're going to have to go upstate. So you can see that like, even he knows his hands are tied. The characters know their hands are tied. So there's not a happy ending. Good. Shouldn't be a happy ending. This is a, this is a, a city in chaos. Um, it's a power structure which is in, in utter chaos and it's, it's completely, completely insane and wrong. 
and the balance is all wrong and it's tilted in the wrong way, good. There shouldn't be a happy ending. Make that and that, and that makes that work. And then you've got like a Bruce, the Bruce Wayne talk between uh, Jim Gordon, uh, Bruce, and Alfred at Wayne Manor. And I think when you're looking at this scene, when you see that the Bruce goes, you know, uh, when he's talking about how Alfred is treating him and talking to him is. That I think an awful lot of Batman fans, when they're talking about the origins of Batman, you know, that, you know, Bruce's parents got killed, he had to witness his parents being murdered in front of him. Um, when I talk about last week, the fact that I missed that little bit of closeness between Thomas and Bruce at the very end, where Thomas would have been the parent who should have been comforting Bruce to go, look, I know this seems terrible, son, but it's actually going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Trying to provide that calming reassurance. What the hell kind of experience when you think about it and you put it in those terms and you step back from it and go, what the hell prepares someone like Alfred Pennyworth for the responsibility of taking on the raising of a teenage boy whose parents have been murdered in front of him, who's also a millionaire and whose family are hugely important and central to the ideals that a city has held and been shaped by? That is an enormous responsibility. In fact, that's an insane responsibility for anyone taking on. There is not a dummy's guide book out there to cover this at all. I don't care what anyone says. There is not a episode of Dr. Phil that covers this. There is not an episode of those who are in the UK, Jeremy Kyle, that's going to cover this. Uh-uh. Ain't going to happen. There's not even an episode of Oprah from the Oprah Network that's, a, that's actually going to cover this and, and help provide an answer here. And we forget the pressure that he's under. So when you're seeing him snap at Bruce, you know, you have to bear in mind, he's in an extraordinary situation himself. Uh, And it's a massive burden of responsibility. How the hell was he ever expected to be able to cope with this? And then when you you were told, and that we're told as an audience, as uh, he's he's telling the story to Jim Gordon, um, Alfred's been told that he's been told to trust Bruce's choices in growing up and to actually respect them and to try and support them. That is a really weird thing. You're in this circumstance where you're raising your employer's kid and making sure that he's safe, looked after, he continues to get educated, and that you're doing the right thing by him so that when he comes of age, he is somewhat adjusted as a person and that he is ready to take part in society in the way that it was, that he should be able to given his status. It's mental. And it is a huge ask of someone. So to see the strain of Alfred um, in dealing with some of Bruce's choices and his behaviours, even though I find the behaviours just a, a little bit too much too soon, you know, it's understandable and it makes that character, again, a little bit more endearing. I've seen some people giving, like, a, like criticising how that character is done, but you need to remember the guys in, it's whatever Bruce's situation being extraordinary, Alfred is in the world's most extraordinary situation. And when you think about the progress, if you're again a fan of Batman, think about what Batman has to become. Where he uh, Alfred goes from being the, uh, the, uh, the substitute stand-in parent to being a friend, to being a counsel, and to being a, a beacon of you know, touching back to the humanity. Of, of 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 who Batman is under the cowl. That is why Alfred is important and it is important. His story I think is equally as important and equally as compelling in the development of how Batman comes around as Bruce's is. And again, a lot of fans tend to lose sight of that. And this show I think is going to be great because people who aren't familiar with the story will actually get to see the journey of someone who ultimately is going to be by Batman's side, albeit in the Batcave or in the manor. 
Again, really, really good. So overall, you know what, I like this episode of the show. There was some good character develop. It was also good to see that there wasn't a heavy reliance on the Wayne murder to carry any procedural stories. Um, and I really like the fact of how some things occurred in the show and how they were displayed. Like Selena Kyle taking the guy's eyes and them actually showing the guy's eyes missing from his head. Uh, and blood streaming down his face again. Gritty, you wouldn't expect that with Batman, especially given it's a Fox show. You'd expect it to be a little bit more family-friendly and not be as graphic as that. And then Paddy putting a bullet between the guy's eyes to kill him off. Again, you don't expect to see that. Even I thought the, the portrayal of the murder of the Waynes, where you actually got to see like the blood splatter and the rest of it. Again, really wasn't expecting to see that in a Fox show. But again, I'm glad to see that they showed the grittiness of it and the fact that this is a, like, a really, really horrible situation for all these characters to be in. And more importantly, people threatening kids to go, if you open your mouth or you stand up, I'm going to stick a bullet in your head. And waving a gun around. And then trying to kill. And then drugging kids and kidnapping them. In a Fox show about Batman. You would not expect to see that in there. You'd be more. Especially if you're familiar with the character. You'd be expecting to see more theatrical characters. And and hugely theatrical uh, criminal events. I mean all you got to do is look at Batman Forever. And uh, the whimsical cavalcade that that movie was. In terms of like you just knew you couldn't take any of it seriously. You were never felt threatened by the villains. You never felt that the villains were doing anything. Which was um, jeopardizing you. anything anywhere or that you felt that any a character that you had invested in was in danger this felt that when you touch on the story of kids being kidnapped drugged and again no real reason behind and some of the violence that's sort of that's uh, hinted at and then sort of the end results being displayed again hugely hugely brave we seldom see kids being threatened with murder on television these days it's just it's not done it's a taboo it really really is um especially the drugging and abduction of kids you don't see it on television. So I have to give a huge amount of kudos to the writers of Gotham for doing that. And for Fox for even being more brave. You know, given the time that that's been shown. This is not like 9 o'clock in the evening stuff or 10 o'clock in the evening stuff. This is like 7, 8. Okay, in the evening. This is like almost family time TV. And they're they're engaging with these stories. So again, this is what makes me a little bit angry when I'm talking about insulting the audience earlier on in the show. Uh, where they they do things where it feels like they're insulting the audience by bringing goofy characters in to try and convey um, something that should be threatening. Uh, when they do things like this and and then you put that side by side, it's, it, I find them very difficult to reconcile. And I just wish they would, you know, what stick to their guns. Don't feel like you need to wimp out. It's okay to show these things. It's okay to to engage in something which is menacing. It's it's good because it engages people, it grips them, it gives them something to sink their teeth in, it makes them emotionally invest in what's going on and make them feel that they're part of that journey and that they want to see good triumph because we all ultimately want to see good triumph. Folks, I really enjoyed this week's episode. I'd love to know what you all thought about it as well. Send your tweets to at Gotham City Pod. Um, Bat fans, Gothamites, thank you once again for lending me your ears for this episode of the Gotham City Podcast. We will be back next week with another light to shine into the darkness of Gotham. And remember, you can check out the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Uh, If you want to follow the show on Twitter, like I said, you can do so at Gotham City Pod. And in general, I like to use the hashtag Hope4Gotham. 
Don't forget, you can check out the site for news on the TV show, GothamCityPodcast.com, and you can also check out the official Gotham subreddit, which is reddit.com slash or forward slash Gotham. There's some great discussions that go on there after each episode of Aired. News items go up there as well, and links to news stories around the TV show, as well as images, and fan fun stuff as well. Reddit is still a really great place to go, so make sure you go and you check it out. So, fans, until next week, let there be hope for Gotham. Was the sound of laughter now resides?